Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Royfield Brown and I'm back in Oakland. This is Mid-Atlantic, your source for nuanced left-to-centre political insights and analysis from both sides of the Atlantic. Today, we do a deep dive into the Republican Party's ongoing leadership turmoil centred on the contentious candidacy of Jim Jordan for the position of Speaker. With nearly two decades in Congress, but with little major legislation to his name, Jordan stands as a divisive figure bolstered by conservative media and ties to the former President Trump. We'll explore the split within the GOP over his potential as Speaker, highlighting the broad implications for the pressing legislative agenda, including the government funding and aid to Israel and Ukraine. What does Jordan's rise mean for the GOP's future and how are Democrats responding to this political upheaval? To help us understand the GOP in crisis in Congress, we have Cora Bernard, political commentator from Manchester in England, Aaron Fisher, Californian political activist and strategist, Doug Levy, a freelance writer and communication strategy expert in San Francisco, and Michael Donahue in Los Angeles, who's an author, journalist, political science enthusiast, and podcaster. To Washington and the planned vote today on a new House Speaker. Our senior congressional correspondent, Rachel Scott, is on Capitol Hill with more. Good morning, Rachel. Michael, good morning to you. The battle over speaker now heads to the floor for a vote, and Congressman Jim Jordan is certainly in for a fight. He has been able to win over some of the holdouts, but he's still far short of the votes he needs. 
This morning, with the House just hours away from voting on a new speaker, Congressman Jim Jordan is still scrambling to lock in the vote. There's still four, at least four Republicans, who say they will not support you. How do you get them on board? We're talking to everyone, listening to everyone. Um, Again, I feel good about how things are moving. Jordan can only afford to lose the support of four Republicans. Right now, at least 10 have signaled they won't back him. Some of us will not just be walked over on this. And we've been walked on since January. That's where I'm at. I have no reason to change that. Um, And so that's where I'm at. Jordan is one of the Republicans leading the impeachment inquiry into President Biden, a staunch ally of former President Donald Trump, who has pushed false claims about the 2020 election. And that's a problem for Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado. Jim, at some point, if he's going to lead this conference, he's going to have to be strong and say Donald Trump didn't win the election. Other Republicans say they've had enough with the party infighting. This has got House of Cards stuff written all over it. We need to get a speaker elected. But it's not as if we have to do it right now. It has to be the right person. The House has been without a speaker for two weeks. First, I want to come to you, Aaron. Jim Jordan's qualifications, or lacks thereof, despite being in Congress for some 17 years, means that he has no real major legislation under his belt, though he's been in Congress for that amount of time. The role of speaker requires building bipartisan coalitions, working with adversaries and accepting half victories. All qualities which Jim Jordan lacks. What does he say about the bankruptcy of uh, potential speakers on the Republican side that Jim Jordan was the first out of the gate? So Jordan for a long time has really been representative of the faction of the Republican Party that just says no. They pretty much want to say no to everything. And when it comes to funding things, they just want to fund it less pretty much whatever it is, unless it's the military. And what this shows is that it's very hard to get to yes when you're all about no. And they have very few votes to spare. And he doesn't seem like he's going to get there. As of Thursday afternoon, he went from this morning, potentially backing Patrick McHenry as a kind of stand-in speaker, just to keep the government open and running. And now, just a few hours later, is now saying, no, he's going to run again. And he's going to try to twist the arms of the 20-ish opponents that he faces in his own caucus. It is gone from a a single dumpster fire to a three dumpster fire. And it's hard to see how they're going to escape from the the situation that they find themselves in. Doug, can you kind of encapsulate for us the conservative media's role in Jordan's rise? It seems to be that um, his appeal stems from his frequent appearances on Fox News. We're talking about a member of Congress who's been in office in Congress where you are a lawmaker, yet 15, 16 years, not one piece of legislation with his name on it as originator has made it out of the House. He's there performance purposes. And he has mastered the art of performing. He does everything to get the soundbite on Fox News and elsewhere. He gets plenty of coverage on the other networks as well. And he's enormously popular among the folks who just have been trained to hate Washington, even though he's a symptom of why we should be hating Washington. Gotcha. Logan, could you tell us um, where exactly the American people stand with their approval or disapproval of what's going on in Congress? I can tell you this much. The American people are not impressed with Congress. 
That has been true for a long time. Sometimes they'll ask voters random questions like their approval rating of certain communicable diseases, and their numbers are sometimes higher than Congress. I guess the ones who don't know what it is and thinks it sounds fun. We're probably back in one of those times because Congress's approval rating has fallen to 12% and 65% disapproved. John Boehner described Jordan as a legislative terrorist, Aram, though some say he's much more of a pragmatic insider who has actually built relationships with other kind of GOP leaders within Congress. If it's not Jim Jordan, who will be the speaker? Who can be the speaker? Who can actually heal this fractious caucus, which is the GOP? Is my uh, official opinion. Uh, it's really hard to see. Kevin McCarthy's number two, Steve Scalise, saw the writing on the wall and he said, I'd rather not be embarrassed repeatedly. I've seen my former number one bang his head into the wall 15 times before he broke through a speaker at the beginning of the session. And he saw that coming for him. If he had stood for speaker, even though he actually received more votes in the caucus than Jordan received. And now Jordan appears hopeless, doesn't seem like the resistance to him becoming speaker is like break. And th these are already the best options they had. They already were in a situation where it was going to be hard to find consensus. And the Democrats are not going to give them any sort of lifeline and without concessions. So they're increasingly floating the idea of power sharing, which sounds very reasonable, but is pure anathema to the Republican Party. So unless there's four quote-unquote moderate Republicans who are willing to jump the aisle, which is very unlikely given who the four most likely Republicans are, then they're really stuck. I, I honestly think that the most realistic option is to not pick a speaker, which is what they've been saying, that they're going to temporarily empower Representative McHenry, who will just keep business moving, and they're essentially going to agree that the best decision they can make right now is to make no decision, even though it, of course, is de facto decision. Doug, just following on from that, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries has shown a preference for the acting speaker over Jim Jordan. But Democrats are somewhat conflicted, dreadful Americanism, are confused, shall we say, about whether to aid the GOP in its leadership turmoil. What should Jeffries do? It's really a question of who wants to be seen as the party that is getting things done. We are headed toward another government shutdown if Congress can't do anything, because we literally cannot pass a federal spending bill if the House is out of order, out of service, which it is until there's a speaker. Accepting an interim caretaker speaker would at least let some of that essential legislation move through. The problem for the Democrats, if they go along with that, is that they don't have the kind of leverage that they would potentially have if they are able to negotiate a permanent or a, an official speaker who requires the Democrats' support in order to get into office. It's also going to be very frustrating. If there's a caretaker speaker, there's not going to be much done but maybe just getting the essentials done is all we need. Who knows? The Republicans are successfully disabling the entire federal government. 
Aaron, I passed on the 20 Republican Congress people who basically veto Jeffries without naming them one by one. What wing of the party are they? What unites them as the no faction to his candidacy? So there's two major factions as I see it. You've got one which are the what we call majority makers. So the people who are running in districts that Biden won in or districts that are potentially flippable from the Democratic perspective. So people who are trying to hold on to their seat. And they see aligning with Jordan as signing their own death certificate. And then there's another block, which is a little bit smaller, but very meaningful, of people like, say, Kate Granger out of Texas, who are the old guard, who believe in the institutions and want to see government run, even if their vision of government is a very conservative vision of what government should look like. So his inability to win both of those blocks is what makes it look so hopeless. He can lose, I believe it's four votes, but he's losing 20. So how do you even get there? And part of his problem is that he's made a lot of enemies. Um, the New York Republicans, who many of which are not all the New York Republicans, but there's three in particular, remember quite well Jim Jordan voting against aid for New York for Superstorm Sandy. And they're not really excited to vote for someone who wasn't there in New York's darkest hour. That's a very clear memory that they have in mind. And so they've been actually nominating Lee Zeldin, who's a former member of the House from the New York delegation, because they just can't countenance Speaker Jim Jordan. It's just not something that they would ever want to see. And I think one thing that's interesting, particularly from the perspective of this podcast, is Europe would have no problem describing the situation right? This is a failure to form a government. But in the American context, we've never seen this. And we're really struggling to find the words to understand what's happening. And we also don't have the mechanism to just call another election to see what the people ultimately, get people another chance to create a governing coalition. Now, it's a really prescient perspective, specifically, as you said, uh, for this podcast. Doug, leave the last word for you. Aram says that this is unprecedented, but there must have been other times when we've had numerous votes for the speaker before in the past. If we pass on a McCarthy in his numerous rounds just to get into the speakership, what are the precedents for this? How long can America go without having a real speaker, not just an acting one who wears a, a rather nice dicky boat? This is truly unprecedented. You're testing my American history memory here, but I'm. It's fairly certain there's never been a period of more than a couple of days without a House Speaker, and we're now into week three. And I think we have to go back about 100 years to the Reconstruction period to have any Speaker election where it took more than a few votes. Two or three votes is not unusual. That's part of politics. But what we've been going through now is insane, especially because look at how we got here. McCarthy had to give away his job, basically, to get elected on the 15th ballot in January. One of the things he gave away was the right for any member of Congress, one person, one of the 435, to level a motion to oust the Speaker. And Matt Gates did that with no plan for replacing McCarthy. Matt Gates's purpose was to disable Congress. And he's 
succeeded at that. And this is what the Trump wing of American politics represents. It's chaos and disabling the federal government. I don't know if, if it's truly chaotic. There's a proud tradition. And I must admit, I asked the question knowing the answer, such is the, the risk of the, the host who actually has the questions in, in front of them. hundred years ago, we had a similar situation. And then in 1855, it took 133 separate votes to elect Nathaniel Banks as Speaker. So Republicans aren't doing too badly at the moment. And on that note, we're going to dive into the buoyant mood permeating Britain's Labour Party. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Previously, the conference has shown Labour to be a divided party. This year, there was none of this, and ministers dutifully towed the line. Starmer obviously had a bit of a run-in with a protester before his speech, but even this sort of helped him. No one really knew what the protester wanted, and deciding to carry on regardless tends to win you support from your audience. Now, there will be those that will still criticise Labour for not having a bold enough policy agenda, or even for having no policy agenda at all. But overall, the Labour conference seems to be indicative of a party that's ahead in the polls. Speeches were packed, the atmosphere was upbeat, and the message was that they're a party on the cusp of achieving power. Overall, the question for both the Tories and for Labour is whether the current state of affairs will endure until the next election. At their recent annual gathering in Liverpool, there was a powerful sense of optimism, with many activists feeling confident about the return to power after 13 years of Conservative rule. Under the leadership of Keir Starmer, the party has started charting a course back to the middle ground, a strategy that seems to be resonating with many. And given their double-digit leads in opinion polls, it looks like they could be onto something, but Starmer isn't without his critics. While the annual conference buzzed with energy and anticipation for a Labour-led government, some feel that the party's current success owes more to conservative mistakes than Starmer's own vision. Logan, what is the current state of pay with UK opinion polls in terms of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party? There is now a huge gap that seems to be getting bigger over time. And that's going to be a huge concern for conservatives because 
think based off how bad their deficit would be that maybe over time it would return to the mean. I think how enduring it is shows the depth of their trouble. Sunak's approval ratings are favorable, unfavorable, and a recent poll by YouGov have gotten to their worst, 23% favorable, 67% unfavorable. Now, a few months ago, he was also in trouble the last time they did this when they found he had a net negative 34% rating. Now it's net negative 44%. Stalmer's not a necessarily rock star category either at this point. 30% favorable, 35% unfavorable. Other polls have it a little closer, some slightly positive even. But it's comparatively to Sunak, it's a much better place. Labor now has consistently a 15, 16, 17, 18, sometimes as much as 20, 22% lead in the polls here over the Tories. Corey? This massive Labour opinion poll lead, and, and as we're recording this podcast, we're about to get the results of two, two by-elections, which will give us a real understanding of how unpopular this Conservative uh, government actually is. But how much of this Labour Party bounce is due to Starmer being a visionary as opposed to just 13 years' worth of Conservative misrule? It's all misrule. I would say that, wouldn't I? Not enthusiasm over... Starmer, for me, is why I don't join in. I'm still not ready to join in the chorus of welcoming him in as the prime minister, the heir apparent, because it's all, it all stems really from the end of Boris Johnson's days. And so these polls haven't, Logan was mentioning, haven't really moved much in either direction from then. That's when things went really badly in terms of this lead really opening up and they've not extended to Labour's benefit equally they haven't they haven't really closed up for, for the Tories so so yeah it, it is all just a case of people tired of oh I know that people are tired of 13 years I think people are tired of the last seven years and I think people are especially tired of the last four years I think that's what it's about I think Rishi Sunak had the opportunity to turn that around a year ago it doesn't seem like he has or wants to I don't see the numbers changing, to be honest. Labour do need a bigger swing than Tony Blair got in 1997 to, to get a majority. And Keir Starmer is no Tony Blair. Yeah, I don't know what to think, really. The most likely outcome at the moment, as things stand, are a minority Labour government. But how long can that survive? Or who would they perhaps go into coalition with, slash maybe supply and confidence? I think that's, I think that's the interesting, interesting thing to think about. What? How long does a minority mm. Labour government survive? And let's not put the horse yeah, before the cart, Corey. They, ha- that, they haven't even called the election, let alone announced the election results that. yet. Michael, Corey made an interesting point, and he very clearly said that Keir Starmer is no Tony Blair. One of the things that swept Tony Blair to power was the fact that he had favourable press, which is what many Labour leaders don't have. Have you noticed maybe the press coming round to not only the inevitability of a, a Labour victory, but and all warming to Keir Starmer? No, I think Tony Blair had a personality, right? And, and regardless of, of what the newspapers say, like there's only so much that they can modify positively the public opinion of Keir Starmer. And he is parking the bus right now, to use an English footy term. He is parking the bus and hoping nothing really bad happens between now and the election. And he's already stuck his foot in it with the comments he made regarding Israel and Gaza a couple of days back. So it's he's just bland 
is the most favorable word I can think of them. Isn't that just what we need right now, though, Corey? A whole load of bland, someone who's a bit of an apparatchik, a technocrat, can actually get government running again and get people not focused on all of the scandals. And if that's what we need, does it matter that there feels like, apart from a little bit of house building, there is no clear vision for the country in terms of what's coming out of Starmer's Labour Party? Yeah, so to answer your question about whether we, whether, isn't that just what we need? Do we need the bland politician? I think we have that. We have that in Rishi Sunak. I think Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer are, are very alike. They are both bland managers and they're just managing different things. I think Rishi Sunak is managing decline. And as you alluded to in the second part of your question, Keir Starmer, there is no grand vision. We know they've been setting the, they've been very much in, expectation management mode over the past couple of months and especially since the conference and it's not quite as as depressing as what biden said before he came in when he said nothing will fundamentally change but it's not much better than that they are not really offering anything more than we are better than the other lot that's all they're really offering and <laughs> as as mike said not only did tony blair have a personality which kirstama doesn't seem to have not only did Tony Blair know how to play the game, which Keir Starmer doesn't seem to have, Tony Blair had a, a vision, massive vision. Now, okay, new Labour, that kind of vision is probably a one in 50 year type political vision, but he had a vision. He had something which people could latch onto and, and identify with. What's Keir Starmer's vision? We're, we're nicer than the Tories and we might spend a little more. Not even that. That's what I'm struggling too. There's, there is no vision. It's just we're more competent. Okay, and people need more to vote on than we're a bit more competent than that, in my opinion. I don't know. Competency right now sounds to me like an election winner. Uh, though we do have reasons to be cautious if you're politically left or centre, though, don't we? Because in 1992, Neil Kinnock, the then Labour Party leader, prematurely had a celebratory rally when Labour were ahead in the polls and he absolutely didn't uh, win that election. Should Labour still be keeping its feet on the ground and should it be developing more policies which actually address root and branch structural problems that the UK has as opposed to nodding and winking to cameras and saying we are your next government? To be honest, every single time I, I see anybody on like Question Time or any other interview and they're asked, they talk about any sort of plan, it's immediately, it's how are you going to pay for it? And just drilling down over and over again in a way that they definitely don't seem to do for the conservatives. And nobody seems to care so much about these billions of wasted dollars, but they're hounding. Billions of wasted pounds. Billions of wasted pounds. There you I, go. I'm pretty sure the pound was at parity with the dollar when I made yeah, that I... comment. But yeah, no, it's... And as long as that sort of mentality exists and as long as the media just says... It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you propose because you're not going to be able to pay for it, especially now when the public is feeling like we can't pay for anything. I think that's tough. And I think that means even more. They need a leader, right? They need a leader. If they doubt, if he hasn't got that big vision thing, he's got to have some kind of personality, some kind of, um, I don't know. I would much rather, if I was a true labor supporter, I'd rather see Andrea Rayner in that spot. Thank you. Who knows? You wish could well be granted to you, but maybe at the end of the second term of 
Keir Starmer's government. Well, there you have uh, live images from Tel Aviv as President Biden steps out of Air Force One and begins his visit to Israel. An incredibly high stakes mission to the country uh, just less than 24 hours after the tragic blast at the hospital in Gaza. You can see him there with Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, we'll see if we can get any sound. I believe at the moment we just have the images here, um, but an incredibly difficult and now even more complicated mission facing the U.S. president. And he's expected, of course, to uh, speak with the prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And there he is uh, being greeted by him and members of his entourage in Tel Aviv. Of course, Air Force One just landed a couple of minutes ago. Uh, later, he's expected to meet as well with uh, first responders, uh, followed by meeting with families of victims uh, from the uh, October 7 a terrorist attack, uh, and he is expected to deliver remarks later on as well. Now, remember, Juliana, he was also supposed to make a trip to Jordan, but that leg of the trip has been cancelled in light of the hospital blast that occurred in the evening yesterday. Thousands of pro-Palestinian demonstrators took to the streets of central London this week, protesting against Israel's military actions in Gaza following recent events with the Hamas militant group. The protesters, many of whom had personal ties to Gaza, expressed discontent with both the UK and the US governments and their support of Israel. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden's visit to the Israeli war zone came at a particularly tumultuous time. Despite facilitating humanitarian aid to Gaza, Biden's trip was overshadowed by a controversial explosion at a Gaza City hospital, which further strained diplomatic relations uh, Biden, while expressing solidarity with Israel, urged Israeli leaders to distinguish between the Palestinian civilians and the Hamas leadership. Through private engagements, we speculate that Biden has, made, has issued warnings not only to Israel's adversaries, but has urged some level of caution to Israel vis-a-vis -vis its military response to the Hamas outraged. So what I want to do now is not go into the whys and wherefores and, and the rights and, and the wrongs of what has prompted this current crisis. But I just really would like to go around and ask everybody really about how they feel their government and their media is, is dealing with this crisis. I'm going to start with you first, Logan. Are there any opinion polls which can give us a, a light on the American public support to the Israel? Yeah, there has been a ton of polling on this, both recently and long term in the United States. Americans are definitely between if you they were forced to choose between Israel and Palestine, it's clearly on the side of Israel. But there's some nuance here. But first, we'll just establish that first point. When they sit and they're asked, which side do they have more sympathy for? It's 47% Israel, 9% Palestine. And I think part of this is the way America views Israel sometimes is almost through the lens of the Holocaust. It's such a significant part of American history and the way we think about ourselves and the world and what we learn as, as kids is like evil at its worst. And the attack on Hamas had a real shift on American and the way Americans perceived Israel and Palestine in the polling. It shifted far more strongly in favor of wanting to do more to support Israel and give more aid, where humanitarian issues had slowly chipped at that over time. However, when you ask people how aid should work in the U.S. in regards to Israel going forward, people say... They want it to continue combined to 
But 22 of the 53% say yes, but conditional on a conduct towards Palestinians. And then 22% oppose it. And then as with all foreign policy issues, there's a big slice that doesn't really know enough to have a comment, and that's for voters. And and how is uh, the American public sentiment to Israel over time? Is it drifting up, drifting down? Is it more or less staying the same? It is. Before this attack, it was drifting down. Americans, again, want to support Israel. It just doesn't mean that they're giving carte blanche to any all, let's say, civilian casualties. And the polls in New York, again, are clear, right? They, they view Hamas as a real threat. They view them as separate from Palestinians, which is a relief because sometimes those distinguishments aren't always there when it comes to foreign policy and nuance. So I was relieved to see that. I find that heartening, interesting, but somewhat heartening because I think if you listen to a lot of, let's say, American politicians that have the hottest of hot takes, there seems to be little distinction between Hamas and the Palestinian people. Yeah, and that's not where the voters are, at least not the overall voting base. On the right, it's the move. They just do automatically some of these folks like Vivek uh, Ramaswamy and DeSantis is to just they like to find ways to divide and to rally people in anger. And so that's going to be their move, even if it's not the ideal one in this case. To be honest, though, even though I think this matters to people, I doubt that's going to be what decides the GOP primaries. The reason they're saying it how much cares if their goal is to win, that's not going to be much of a cost to them. Doug, how much of U.S. commentary, media commentary is being dominated by the Middle East at the moment? Close to 100 percent. Great. All right. Thank you for that succinct answer, sir. <laughs> you, you somewhat took the wind out of my sails there because I was thinking of my next question. That it, it depends on what media outlets you're paying attention to in terms of what message you get. But all of the outlets are dominated by what's happening in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. The messaging that you hear is wildly different, as we're seeing with every issue in this country. And sadly, there's not a whole lot of places to go for much accuracy. And unless you're a news nut like we are, and you actively are consuming at least two different U.S. outlets and at least one foreign outlet, you really have no idea what happened for real. Corey, how has Rishi Shunak's visit to Israel gone down in the British press? It seems to me it, it was a photo op, not much aid and succor, not much policy pronouncements, but he was there because this is where the world's media is and Britain with our diminished status, we need to be wherever the cameras are globally. Yeah, I think it's very much about trying to justify the position at the top table. Uh, I found it really interesting You've had so you've had a couple of different leaders in addition to Biden and Sunak go to Israel in the past week. I believe the German Chancellor went. I think Macron went or is going imminently. But what I found interesting about the Sunak visit was you've got Sunak and James Cleverly there at the same time. And obviously James Cleverly went last week, I think literally two days after it happened. But you've had them both there almost shadowing Biden and Blinken, because obviously Blinken is true state, is James Cleverly's equivalent as foreign secretary. So I found that really interesting, that sort of just straight mirroring of positions. But yeah, I think that's what it is. It, it, it is about trying to main, trying to justify that position of being at the top table. Global Britain, as we used to hear a lot of and we don't hear much of now, is really trying to still be global Britain, if not in name, but at least in nature. Just one other thing I was going to say, I was, uh, I've been listening to a lot of uh, BBC Radio uh, on this and one of the uh, political 
uh, analysts on there today, as Sunak was touching down, um, was quite, I thought, quite blunt, especially for the BBC, in his assessment. And he mentioned a few times, essentially, words to the effect of, look, it's all well and good Rishi doing, Rishi Sunak being there, but it's only really Biden who can really talk to the Israelis on a level where they have to listen. That's essentially what he said. I can't remember word for word, but that was the nature of what he was saying. He was basically saying, mm. look, it's all, it's nice, but it's not that effective, basically, is what he was saying. And, and everybody knows that's true. The only people that could possibly, potentially, maybe influence the is- Israel position at the moment is Biden and the Americans, nobody else. But I found that quite interesting, just going back to your original question about 100%. how the press is covering it. The press seemed quite realistic about the limits of Sunak and I guess Sunak and Cleverly's visit. But hey, Cleverly's doing a tour of the region, so Sunak, and we, we saw that after Biden left yesterday, the, that resulted in Egypt agreeing to open their border for aid. Let's see, maybe tomorrow, the day after, we might hear that there was something came about as a result of Sunak and Cleverly's tour too. I don't, I won't hold my breath, but who knows? Mm. Aaron, Doug said that there is a divide, or at least you can get slightly different messaging depending on what media outlet that you get your news from in the United States. Is that at all reflected in terms of political parties, politicians from political parties? Are you uh, more hawkish if you are Republican, full stop, and more dovish if you're Democrat? Is it as simple as that, or is there much more nuance? There is more nuance. Uh, Much like our fractious media environment, we also have fractious politics when it comes to foreign policy. And most notably on the right, there's been an increasing isolationist block. And so there's... Some people out there who are basically saying no to funding foreign military action. Some of those people are more staunchly on that side about Ukraine than they are around funding Israel. Certainly there are, there's a more, a larger dovish block on the far left of the Democratic Party, uh, but that's still a somewhat modest group. The overwhelming percentage of American politicians is very staunchly pro-Israel and falling over themselves to find the the most pro-Israel stance possible. And there's some people who I would suggest have taken that way too far. Mike, last question to you. We have seen mass pro-Palestinian demonstrations in London, and we've seen the resignation of some Muslim Labour councillors because of Keir Starmer's stance. Is this going to be an issue for Starmer going forward or will Labour be able to weather this storm? For sure. I believe the 2017 election, Muslims voted 85% Labour. So it's a significant voting block. And I think obviously it's so super touchy because of Labour's historical issues with anti-Semitism, right? So if anything... I understand why Kier made some of the statements that he did early on, but it's a very tricky road for anybody to walk. But I think he'll just turtle up and do the absolute minimum and try to shuffle through it as best he can. In in the areas where there are uh, Muslim representatives, those those districts are. I'm just, sorry, <laughs> my God, I'm so American. Constituencies, they're gonna, they're gonna, they were gonna go labor anyway. So I don't know that he needs to be overly concerned. 
I'm inclined to agree with you. And on that note, wrap up this slightly truncated edition of Mid-Atlantic. You are going to be getting a, a special Mid-Atlantic early next week where we go back to Ibrahim, who we had on last week, who's in Ramallah. And Yehuda, who is in Jerusalem, who will be giving us the week, as they understand it, from the two respective positions as a Palestinian and as an Israeli. But very quickly, in time-honored fashion, we go through the panel and we ask them what they've been up to in the last seven days. Gentlemen, be brief. I'm going to start with you, Doug, because I know that you've got a hard out in about a minute. So, Doug Levy, what have you been up to in the last seven days? I've been watching and weeping over the civilian deaths in the Middle East. I don't care what your ethnic background is or what side of the fence you're on. Death is death and violence is violence and neither is a good thing. And I pray for peace and safety for all. Where can people catch up with you on social media? I am occasionally on X still, but not for much longer, at SFDoug. You can find me on Facebook at Doug Levy News, and that's or on the web, DougLevy.com. Thanks, Smashing. Uh, Logan, my pollster friend, how about you? Last seven days, what have you been up to? Said Doug, I agree, and I haven't doing much of the same. But other than that, I also, if you're following the House Speaker race and you want to see the vote live, we're tracking it now on the race to the White House. So it's on the front page there, race to the WH.com. And I'll show you each round who's changing their votes. You can get a gist of also what caucuses they're part of. You can follow me on Twitter at LoganR2WH. I guess on X, I guess one day I'll have to make the shift. Twitter. Twitter. There you go. My good friend, Aaron Fisher. Can I just recommend anybody, if you're in the Bay Area and you want a Vietnamese meal, just knock up Aaron Fisher. He takes you to great places and pays as well so he's a smashing person to hang out with mr fisher last seven days other than having a meal with me what else you been up to so mostly enjoying the glow of having had that dinner with you it's truly outstanding but outside of that i've been paying a lot of attention particularly today to the fact that sydney powell put in a guilty plea and she for those who don't know was actually a very important legal figure within Trump's attempts to overturn the elections. And most notably for someone like myself who works in the election technology space as part of my work, she pled guilty to election crimes. And she was part of a crew that infiltrated the Copy County, Georgia election offices. And it's really one of the worst things that happened in 2020 and most Americans don't know about it. And so I'm very anxious to see how it gets reported out and I'm really hoping that story gets told because in part because of the January 6th and the election integrity concerns that were put out there that weren't really well thought out or considered or right this story where there actually really are deep election integrity concerns has been paid attention to so I've been paying attention to that and hoping that it will lead to more protection for election officials than our election well Amen to that Mike Donahue, what about you, sir? Last seven days, been up to anything particularly exciting, interesting, or noteworthy? No. In a nutshell, no. How did I, I know I, you were going to say no? The way I, I, never, the way I, I, I do it. What I've been doing, I've been watching, obviously, in real time, the speaker votes, which is just tedious. 
But, and I've also, what I've been trying to do is catch and or watch on YouTube as many of the news channel Israel-Palestine debates where they have a representative from each actually on there. And just, just listening to the two arguments and the discussion and how the moderators or the, or the news channel themselves present them. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's sad. Be interesting to hear your critique of me when we put out the next podcast then. And I don't know if you listened to last week's, but they, I thought the uh, Yehuda talking about the, the panic and going into the safe room and then with his critique of Israeli politics was, re- was really quite interesting. And also Ibrahim really expressed the decades, generational frustration of, of Palestinians with, with a lack of movement toward, towards statehood. But anyway, that critique of me, sir, will have to come next week. Can people catch up with you on social media, though, Mr. D? Yeah, I guess. Um, am I the only threadizen here? Michael Donahue on threads. I don't support that other platform. There you go. Corey, I know you don't support any social media platform for uh, reasons which you've outlined n- numerous times on the podcast before. But in the last seven days, you been on any more trains, sold any more beaten up secondhand cars? Oh, are you still supporting uh, the wonderful, beautiful game of football? I-, I cannot remember. What have you been up to, sir? So no cars, but yes, the trains. A trip south for me, back to what they call the capital. I went to, uh, went to, I spent my week, spent part of my weekend at Rumfest, a festival for rum lovers everywhere. Takes place in London every October. That was fun to be back there. It's the first time I've been back since the pandemic where I sampled rums from all over the world. But apart from that, like, I've been pretty much glued to TV, radio, online, and unfortunately Twitter slash X on my burner account. And yeah, just being horrified daily at new events, new death. There you go. That's been us, Mid-Atlantic. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget, Left of Centre Politics is Right Thinking Politics. Keep your eyes on the Middle East, please. This isn't just an abstract conflict. The outrages that have been perpetrated, as heinous and as conscionable as they are, are part of a broader cycle of despair and of violence. And the only way we can break that is by having a just and equitable peace for the Palestinians so that the Israeli state can live in peace and security. I've been Royfield Brown with Logan Phillips, Doug Levy, Mike Donoghue, Aaron Fisher and Cora Bernard. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.